welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Yong Lu. I'm the Senior Director of Development at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. I'm inspired that so many of you are joining us for this very timely and important topic, the coronavirus, anti-Asian racism in the United States, and Sino-American relations. This event launches a new area of programming for the National Committee aimed at increasing public awareness of issues surrounding anti-Asian racism. But we want to be clear that racism, no matter what it's directed against, is abhorrent and unacceptable. The fact that our discussion takes place in the midst of the upheaval following the murder of George Floyd makes us even more keenly aware of the importance for us to talk to each other about these issues. It is not easy, but it is long past due. And we fervently hope that just as we're wrestling with the discussions this afternoon, that the current national crisis will lead to a desperately needed national conversation about race relations. Today, we will hear from two extraordinary experts. For our attendees, you can ask questions anytime during the event by using the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen. Please be sure to include your name and affiliation. Now it's my honor to introduce our panelists, Jennifer and John. Jennifer Ho, is the director of the Center for Humanities and the Arts at the University of Colorado Boulder, where she also holds an appointment as professor of ethnic studies. She is the daughter of a refugee father from China and an immigrant mother from Jamaica. She is the president of the Association for Asian American Studies. Jennifer is an award-winning scholar for her research on race relations. John Palfrit is a journalist and a writer who has divided his time among the United States, China, Europe, Africa, and the Middle East since the 1980s. He was one of the first Americans to study in China following the establishment of diplomatic relations, and was a correspondent in China for the Associated Press and the Washington Post. Zhang is the author of best-selling books about Chinese history and U.S.-China relations. Welcome you both. Thank you. Let me start by showing everyone something. During my last ski trip to Massachusetts, I visited the Norman Rockwell Museum, and I got this mug from the museum gift store that displays the paintings by the artist Norman Rockwell, entitled Four Freedoms. 80 years ago, 
President Franklin Roosevelt explained so well to us the meaning of freedom. Freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. I particularly like this painting, the last painting about freedom from fear, where you can see the two parents carefully watching their children sleep. Parents around the world hope the same thing for their children, peace and a better life. For Asian Americans, however, in addition to protecting our families from the virus, we are also facing the potential danger caused by prejudices. And we know this danger could last longer than the virus itself. Just counting the past two months, there have been more than 1,800 reports on anti-Asian incidents in the country, ranging from harassment to outright assault. So Jennifer, can I first ask you, how do you see this phenomenon and what we can do about it? Sure. Um, first of all, it is really a delight to be here and speaking with all of you, and I'm incredibly grateful um, to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations for inviting me here. Um, and very humbled to be in the company of John Pomfret, who really is a China expert, and I'm really not a China expert. I'm, I've been invited here to talk to you because of my expertise on critical race studies and Asian American culture um, and literature. So I want to begin, because I'm president of the Association for Asian American Studies, by sharing out a statement that we recently released um, in support of our Black family, friends, colleagues, coworkers, and neighbors. So let me just screen share right now. So if we're going to be talking about racism in the United States today, and I am going to be focusing my remarks on racism in the US for the most part, because this is my area of expertise, then we really have to understand that if you're going to be talking about anti-Asian racism in the rise of COVID-19 now, we have to also be talking about, as Young so eloquently described at the beginning of this webinar, all forms of racism. And most acutely for those of us living in the United States or even around the globe, seeing images from the protests of the past week, we know that there is so much pain and so much heartache. So my association came out with a very brief statement showing our support and our solidarity for our black colleagues, coworkers, neighbors, families, friends. And I highlighted and bolded and enlarged one line that I wanna to use to pivot into talking about um, anti-Asian racism and COVID-19. Our fight against anti-Asian pandemic racism is rooted in a common struggle against white supremacy. This is really crucial to understand. And I think it, it also really speaks to why this is about anti-Asian racism, not just anti-Chinese racism. So while China and Chinese people have been targeted and blamed for the coronavirus in the United States, and while you've probably heard various people use the phrase Chinese virus or get defensive when saying that they should use the phrase Chinese virus, the truth is all forms of racism against Chinese in the United States are forms of racism against anyone who is perceived to be Chinese in the United States, which means that it is an Asian slash Asian American issue. I'm gonna turn now to my PowerPoint, so let me stop sharing this statement and instead pull up my PowerPoint presentation. 
So I developed this PowerPoint to address the very question of why saying Chinese virus is racist. In late March, I kept seeing and hearing people defending the use of the phrase Chinese virus. And one of the things they said was, well, if we're calling it, if we said Spanish flu in the past, why can't we say Chinese flu or Chinese virus now? The educator in me decided to be very generous with that question and take it seriously. And I created this very simple PowerPoint slide deck that you can actually find on my university's website. And I believe um, that might be shared out with all of you. If not, you can go to my Twitter account, which is at Dr. Jen Ho, and the pinned tweet has a link to a Google form. And I'd be happy to share out the PowerPoint with all of you on this webinar right now. So I'm not gonna go over the webinar, the PowerPoint in detail, but there are a few things that I really wanna hit to talk about this connection of anti-Asian racism and COVID-19, and especially what you can do about anti-Asian racism and really all forms of racism. Okay, so the first thing is we have to really define what racism is. And racism isn't just individual acts of people saying Chinese virus or using inflammatory language or racist language. Racism is systemic. Racism is institutional in its form. And racism can mutate and has mutated over time. So we are seeing a particular brand of racism with respect to the targeting of Chinese and Asians in the United States, and I should add globally, with respect to COVID-19. But in the last part of this particular slide, I point out racism in the United States has taken the form of the transatlantic slave trade, the American Indian dispossession of land, um, the fact that Latinx populations have been targeted and continue to be targeted. So there's continue to be children held in cages on the US southern border. And of course, the policies and the laws of the United States for many centuries were guided by racism, systemic racism. So I'm not going to go again into detail about this. But in this slide deck, I talk about anti-Asian racism, right? It begins when you have the first significant wave of Asians coming into the United States, which is Chinese laborers coming into California in the 19th century, mid, mid to late 19th century, okay? This leads to a rise in what is called yellow peril language. And I'm sure John will be talking more about this as well. Um, and that yellow peril language and sentiment fuels the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act and other forms of discriminatory laws in the United States. So this phrase Asian American for some of you may seem like a, a label that you yourself don't identify with. So for example, my parents, um, you know, my dad is a refugee from China. My mother actually grew up in Jamaica. Her parents were immigrants from Hong Kong. My parents don't identify as Asian American, except on census forms. They predominantly identify as Chinese or Chinese American. I, I would say my father identifies as Chinese, my mother identifies as Chinese American. I myself, as a primary mode of identification, use Asian American. And I use that really deliberately, not because I have any shame in being Chinese, quite the opposite, but because first and foremost, as an anti-racism educator, I understand that for people who are seeing me and looking at me, they're not seeing someone who's necessarily Chinese, although a lot of people guess that I'm Chinese. They are seeing an Asian face. And in the United States, an Asian face equals someone who's foreign. So my claim to an Asian American identity is also a claim in saying that I am a US citizen, I'm an American, I, have, I can claim a belonging in the US. 
And by claiming a belonging, it's not simplistic, it's not jingoistic, it's not xenophobic, it's recognizing the United States warts and all for its many, many flaws, but then also wanting, to the, wanting the United States to be better than it has been. Um, the other thing is that, again, this flattening of, of ethnicity. So we see this when Vincent Chin in the early 1980s was murdered by two unemployed white auto workers who wanted to get revenge against the Japanese for the auto industry slump in Detroit. It didn't matter to them that Vincent Chin was Chinese American. In fact, I think he even told them that he was Chinese. Didn't matter. He still was murdered for his racial ethnic difference. And then again, we saw this after 9-11 where South Asian Sikhs um, and Hindus were targeted and in some cases murdered by people who wanted to take revenge for 9-11. So in moments of crises, we have seen this time and again. It doesn't matter what your particular Asian ethnicity is. Anyone who wants to target you in, and do something terribly harmful will do so no matter what your ethnicity actually is. So I have two slides that talk about why saying Chinese virus is racist. I'm going to skip over that because I assume all of you understand that saying Chinese virus is racist, otherwise you wouldn't have signed up for this webinar. Um, there's also embedded hyperlinks that show you the, the kind of incidents of anti-Asian harassment and racism that's been occurring in the United States. And again, these are incidences that have been occurring against anyone perceived to be Asian rather than just particularly Chinese. Um, and then I do want to spend some time on this slide. And I think I have maybe about four minutes left and I don't want to talk too long. One of the things I keep seeing increasingly is this question of what individual people can do. And I think we can all do something. So it doesn't matter where whoever you are or wherever you're positioned, you can do something. The first thing that you have to decide is that you want to do something, that you want to be someone who is fighting against racism and be an ally and an educator. So that's step one. And the fact that you're attending this webinar suggests that you've already taken that step. The second thing is education. So you have to educate yourself about what racism means. I know not everyone on this webinar may be located physically in the United States. Racism is local and contextual. So you'll need to figure out what the resources are for you if you're not in the US. For those of you in the US, these are some good resources that I've tried to compile really simply to talk about what you can do to be an anti-racist ally, how to educate yourself about the history of racism in the United States. And then what you need to do is you need to talk about it and you need to act. So in other words, it's not enough to just say you're not racist. Not saying racist things, not doing racist things means you're a decent human being. But to be someone who's actively anti-racist, to be someone who is promoting anti-racism means taking action. So the first thing is to really talk about it because all of us in our local communities, in our family, among our friend group, we all have friends and family members who may not share our particular worldview or value system about what it means to be anti-racist. And those conversations are hard. It's hard to have conversations with family members and friends about issues of racism and equity and being anti-racist. But it's really important to start there, start with your local community, your close friends, and to have conversations and to try and dialogue about this. And then you can do more things. You can attend a bystander training. You can, you can volunteer for a social justice organization. You can write about it. 
you can take more if if it's safe for you to do so in your work environment you can you can do so in your work environment and so the last thing i'll end with is this slide of um further reading because again i think a lot of times people just don't know this history and it's really important to understand what the history of racism has been in the united states in general which is why i included um carol anderson's white rage and ibram kendi's how to be an anti-racist and certainly to understand the history of racism in, in the United States against Asian Americans, it's very important to read these historical works, Madeline Shue's Asian American History, Erica Lee's The Making of Asian America, May Nye's Impossible Subjects, um, and Daryl Maeda's Chains of Babylon. And then just for a read about what it means to be racialized politically in the United States, Michael Omi and Howard Winant's Racial Formation in the United States is really key reading. I'm going to stop and I'm happy to answer questions during the Q&A. Thank you for the great overview. Yes, very important to understand the current wave of attacks is not a new development. It's a part of a long American history going back to the 19th century. The perceptions of Asian Americans are unavoidably impacted by the U.S. relations with Asia. John, how do you interpret today's situation in the context of U.S.-China relations? Uh, sorry, when, what, when, what way? Sorry, could you tease out that question a little bit more? Can you how do you interpret today's situation mm -hmm. in the context of U.S.-China relations? Well, um, how America has treated Chinese Americans actually has always had a very deep impact on its relations with China. Um, and a perfect example would be that Jennifer spoke, at first, actually, I'd like to sort of step back a second and thank the committee for inviting me. And I actually, I'm equally honored to be on a panel with Jennifer. She wrote a marvelous article called Claiming Dixie um, that was published in 2019 that I clearly, I would love everyone to read. It's just a really remarkable, uh, and you should turn that into a book, by the way, but that's another issue. Um, so I also want to speak a little bit about the humility with which I bring to this discussion. Um, I am clearly a middle-aged white guy, graying, and there are levels of white privilege that I've been um, luckily to have been the be beneficiary of. In some ways, don't even, I don't even understand them, and I'll give you an example of that last night. I was out until 8.20 uh, on a walk around my neighborhood with a friend of mine. And in Alameda County, we have an eight o'clock curfew. And so I arrived home 20 minutes after the curfew had started to face my 14-year-old daughter, who is by far and away far more woke than I will ever be. And she said to me, you know, Dad, if you and your friend had been black men and the Berkeley police had responded, how, what, would what would have happened then? I mean, you're white guys walking around a nice neighborhood in Berkeley, but if you've been two black guys, what would the difference have been? And that set me thinking that clearly I, um, I need to bring more humility into my, my analysis of this issue and also um, just in terms of my daily life. So with that, let me stumble into your question. So the, in 1882, the, the, the American government passed the uh, Chinese Exclusion Act, which banned Chinese laborers from coming to the United States. And initially, it was actually a significant violation of a treaty that America had concluded with China in 1868 called the Burlingame Treaty. And that was during actually a high point of America's views of Chinese coming into the country. 
the treaty was written by William Seward, who was the Secretary of State under uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln. And Seward's belief was actually the more Chinese who came to America, actually the stronger America would be. Sadly enough, the American economy turned south in the 1870s. And as the American economy turned south in the, Ameri in the 1870s, Americans turned on the Chinese. Uh, and so you see a large number of lynchings, ethnic cleansing out of 200 villages and counties and, uh, and, and areas in, in, on the West Coast, the burning down of Denver's Chinatown, uh, the lynching in Los Angeles of 16 Chinese on October 24, 1871. And that situation gets worse and worse and worse um, as political parties are organized based on an anti-Chinese plan. An example would be the California Working Men's Party. And of course, the Democratic Party being the party of American labor, which was actually the party of American white labor, was very important, very, very critical in fighting uh, Chinese immigration to America, leading to the Anti-Exclusion Act which was a violation of the treaty. And the American government in liaising with the Chinese uh, over this issue, the Qing court said, well, it's temporary, it won't be permanent. Uh, it's not really a violation. We need to restrict this issue. Finally, in 1904, the US government made the Exclusion Act permanent. And when it did that, it touched off a series of anti-American boycotts in China, which were really actually the first push inside China to fight against the actions of imperialism in China. So how America treats Chinese in this country does impact our relationship with the Chinese today as well. And that was sort of the first example, but that's continued on into the, on into the, into the present. Great, thank you, John. And it's amazing how perceptions, not just facts, have been leading uh, politicians and people's actions. And as both of you um, put so well in your presentations, um, we have to look at Asian American history, race history, and U.S.-Asia relations to better understand today's situation. And Jennifer mentioned earlier that in the 1980s, um, Chinese American Vincent Chen in Detroit was brutally beaten to death by two white auto workers because they thought Chen was Japanese and they blamed him for the success of Japan's auto industry. And both killers received a very lenient sentence with no jail time. So history has a way of moving in circles. What are the concrete steps we can take to learn from the past so that horrific tragedies like this uh, won't happen again? I'll, I'll let Jennifer take that one. Oh, I was gonna, I was gonna pivot to you, John. Um, <laughs> I don't know, I gotta be honest with you, I don't know that we can actually prevent racism from happening again, because it's been happening for millennia, not just in the United States, but worldwide. But that doesn't mean we don't try. And so certainly trying means, um, again, educating yourself about what racism is, what it looks like. So I saw one of the questions in the Q&A from a teacher in, in Texas, I believe, uh, who asked about whether anti-Asian sentiments are associated with white supremacy. And the answer is yes. Um, and it's not to make people feel uncomfortable, those of you who are watching this and who identify as white. I'm not certainly trying to um, hurt your feelings because this isn't about hurting individual feelings. This is about recognizing the reality that well over the last three centuries in the United States, 
it was much better to be identified as white than it was to have any other form of identity. It was much better for you to be male than to be female. And so white supremacy guides and has guided and still guides much of the laws that we have in the United States, as well as the culture and society that we now have. Small case in point, the fact that when you say American, you, you usually hyphenate if you're not white. So in other words, I say I'm Asian American, I don't say I'm American. Because, I mean, it'd be an interesting political thing for me to do, to identify as American. Quite frankly, people wouldn't, wouldn't buy it. I would get questioned constantly if I just simply said that I was American. Um, and, and quite honestly, I don't feel un, as like I'm an unhyphenated American because being an unhyphenated American for so long has meant being white. I think that's changing, but again, subconsciously, if you say the word American and you ask people to close their eyes and envision who, who someone looks like, they're probably gonna envision someone that looks like John first before they'd ever envision someone that looks like me or young. John, do you have anything to add to? Well, I mean, that's a great point. And you also actually see that reflected in Chinese. So in China, um, in China, on numerous occasions, uh, people we would I'd be discussing with Chinese friends, but the United States, and they would say to me, well, you're a real American and you're not a minority. Um, and that's a similar narrative that the Chinese embraced, have embraced about the United States as well. Um, and that I'm considered quote unquote normal and somebody like Jennifer is considered not. Um, and so that's something that's not simply an issue that, that we have in our society, but it's also an issue that other societies have in viewing us. Yeah. That's what I can add. Yeah, it seems to me education is so important um, regarding all these issues. And research found that average Americans, they generally are lacking basic knowledge about Asian Americans. For example, uh, most cannot distinguish the widely different Asian American ethnic subgroups. And many, as you mentioned, will think an Asian American is a foreigner, even though that person is a sixth generation American. Um, so what we can do as individuals and also for community leaders that we can um, reach out at the grassroots level to make a difference. I can talk a little bit about, um, step into sort of Jennifer's turf, if you will, but a little bit about some of the education that I think is necessary to at least to bring it into our schools. We don't really have a discussion in I'm, I'm, I have two daughters who are in middle school, and there's no discussion in middle school history about, at all, not even a page in their textbooks about the Asian American experience, even about the history of China. I mean, actually, in some cases, they did do the history of China, but whenever they do the history of China, they almost always do the history of ancient China. It's never today's China, or China's reaction in, in relations with the rest of the world today, or in the 19th century. It's always about this kind of exotic, oriental, quote unquote, China that is somehow safe and packaged and a lot of people with long beards and, and cues. And I think that that is something that, that could very well be done through the course of the education system, which is very difficult to change, understandably. But I think education is really important on this issue. On the flip side, I think it's also important in the Chinese American community to also educate Chinese Americans as well 
because you know, starting even in the 19th century, you see strains in the Chinese American community or the Chinese community in the United States that reject the idea that anti-Native American racism or anti-Black racism really impacts Chinese. And Chinese wanting, some Chinese wanting to separate themselves in order to be embraced by the whites as sort of semi-white um, and, and rejecting the Native Americans and the, and, the, and, and the African Americans. And you see that strain foreshadowed then that's continued today in some of the challenges that the Chinese American community has in this country with, for example, embracing affirmative action or for supporting efforts in California to reintroduce race as a factor of admissions in California state universities, which have, has been taken out. And I think that's a really interesting and deep and actually very fractious, somewhat conflicted issue, but I think it's very important to, to grapple with this. And this is sort of a, a, an opportunity to kind of deal with that, to impress upon people, as you said in the beginning, that, that racism against one group of people equals racism against all. I, I think John's suggestions are really quite important, especially the idea of when Chinese American, Asian American history gets taught, or rather the fact that it so often doesn't. So when I was um, growing up in the 1980s in California, the only thing I ever heard about Chinese people related to US history was that the Chinese helped build the railroads. That was the only thing. We, and we didn't learn anything about Japanese American incarceration. So it wasn't until I got to college at UC Santa Barbara and I took my first Asian American history class that I learned about all of this history regarding Asians in the United States, particularly Chinese in the United States. In the chat function, I just sent two links. And, and there's a name that I want you all to know, and, and she's actually on the poster behind me, and that's Grace Lee Boggs. So one thing in answer to, to Yang, your question, that everyone can do is to, is to read the Wikipedia entry on Grace Lee Boggs. It's totally easy to do. And then if you have time to read about her life further, Google her. And if you can get a copy of American Revolutionary, the film that was made about her, her life is a template of what it meant to address systemic racism and the small things that an individual can do. And so um, she was college educated um, from New York City. She moved to Detroit and she became an activist. She married an African-American man and she really led a quite an incredible life. Um, she's proof that all you need is the will and the desire to do it. And so I think, you know, what I would say again as an educator is that the first thing that people can do is to educate yourself about Asian American issues, about the history of Asian Americans and about racism, and then talk about it. Um, I, I would also encourage people not to be bystanders. So when you see racism happening, it's important to say something. If you've been the target of a racist attack yourself, you should definitely report it. There's um, a website called AAPI Hate. No incident is too small. So for example, I was walking my dog and dogs do what they do on a walk. And I had a bag and I picked up his poop um, and he did his business on a strip of grass in between the sidewalk and the street, which I always understood to be sort of fairly public property. A white woman came out of her house and began yelling at me. And at first I was confused because I didn't realize that I was the target of her anger. And when I finally figured out that she was yelling at me, I asked her, like, are you yelling at me? And she, you know, basically told me to get off her lawn, right? The, the, the small grass of, of median strip between the sidewalk and the street, she was identifying as her lawn. So she was telling me to get off her lawn and to have my dog get off her lawn. 
and I had already picked up his business, right? So I, you know, I said, you know, first of all, I, I was sorry. I didn't realize that this was her lawn and, you know, and that we weren't doing anything unusual. And then she accused my dog of giving her COVID-19. Now, I, I have to think, right? Like, why is she saying that my dog, a corgi, a Welsh Pembroke corgi, is going to give her COVID-19 from simply doing what dogs do on that median strip? I reported it. I mean, it's totally small. I didn't feel um, unsafe in any way, but I definitely think that as microaggressions go, it was probably targeted towards me as an Asian looking person. Um, and I would say there, again, there is no microaggression too small. Um, I've had friends, Japanese, a Japanese American friend who was chased by a white man in the Safeway or in the parking lot of a um, Trader Joe's um, and accused of bringing coronavirus into the United States. And I encourage him to report that too. Thank you. These are very specific advice for individuals could do to make a difference. Um, and I think that's especially useful for Asian Americans like myself, because we often behave as the so-called model minority. You know, many are educated and we are doing well economically, but when it comes to racism or American foreign policy, we keep our heads down um, because we are afraid that these issues are sensitive and we don't want to um, get into trouble. John, do you want to uh, comment on that? I think that I think that there is there is a narrative that uh, Asian Americans, and in particular Chinese Americans, have had a certain passivity in the face of these type of issues. But if you look back to the nineteenth century, at least, they were by far the most litigious group in the United States. They took city governments, county governments, state governments, federal governments to court on a regular basis. They had a very large legal defense fund that was amassed by the Chinese Consolidated, Consolidated Benevolent Association, which basically you know, amassed that fund through um, mandatory contributions by Chinese laborers. And they won a lot of cases against a whole slew of racist ordinances against Chinese businesses. And some of those cases were, in, were held by the, were in the Supreme Court. A very important case was in, 1880, in the 1880s, basically involving equal protection under the law, which then pops up in the 1950s when Thurgood Marshall is arguing against separate but equal schooling in the 1950s. Another case, much to the chagrin of the current president in the White House, basically uh, proved that um, if you're born in the United States, it conveys immediate citizenship on the person born in America. And that was in 18, I believe, 90 something. But, but I think the narrative that Chinese are somehow passive in the face has not been kind of carried out by the facts. They have been fighters on a regular basis for freedom and for a better America, uh, clearly uh, from, the, from the early, from earliest days of their arrival in this country until today. Um, so um, while I respect Yongwu's view on this, this issue, I, I also think that we have a clear line of very active, I mean, you look at the, the Chinese um, equal rights organizations were formed in the 1880s, um, gentleman Wang Qingfu who formed that. Um, this is 70 years before Martin Luther King uh, basically was arguing that 
it's the content of your character, not the color of your skin, should define you. He's arguing for the same thing. So there's a deep tradition in the Chinese community and the Asian American community of fighting for their rights. Um, and also, of course, Japanese Americans. Uh, the Korematsu case in the Supreme Court would be an example. Yeah. Great, we hope we can continue this tradition and hopefully a new generation of Asian Americans deserves to do more than that. Um, my next question is about, we talk about the importance um, of building bridges for Asian Americans too, um, because eventually it's not just an Asian American issue, uh, seeking justice is the common goal for all races and what Asian American community leaders can do to actually um, build bridges and coalitions across communities to combat racism in our neighborhoods and cities. Jennifer, you want to go first? Sure. So I saw actually that in the Q&A, someone asked about concrete ways that Asian Americans and African Americans can work together. Um, I was 16 years at UNC Chapel Hill and I realized that I didn't know a whole lot about what it meant to be in the U.S. South and live in the U.S. South. And I didn't know a whole lot about what it meant to be black in the U.S. South. And so I took it upon myself to attend as many um, lectures and conferences and talks as I could that dealt with African-American issues in the U.S. South and African-American issues in general. And people started to notice this, right? There aren't a whole, there weren't a whole lot of Asian Americans at UNC Chapel Hill when I was there in 2003. There still aren't. Um, and especially a woman who keeps coming back again and again. And I would ask questions and I would be in dialogue and I showed my intellectual curiosity and I showed also my own expertise and knowledge in Asian American issues. And um, these were my colleagues who then became my friends. And then we worked together in coalition on various anti-racism issues that happened at UNC involving not just Asian Americans and not just Black Americans, but Latinx group and indigenous populations and also other intersectional identities, queer people, disabled people, etc. So the first step is really, if you want to dialogue with another group, go to that group. Um, there are plenty of African American groups, Latinx groups. There are plenty of groups that have a pan-racial, pan-ethnic social justice orientation. Um, it really depends on what your organization is or your focus is. If your focus is education, um, I can provide really concrete examples. If your focus is business, my guess is that there are business associations that address this issue. There are certainly consultants who will come into your business and help talk about issues of race um, and diversity training. But I think on a local level, like if you're concerned about this in your school district, then you just have to figure out, you know, maybe you, you make it happen, right? You create a parenting group that addresses issues of race and racism, and you invite everyone to come to that parenting group, um, and you do a set of reading together, or you have certain goals in common about what you want to accomplish together in the name of equity and inclusion and anti-racism. Before we turn to the audience, uh, we already have in uh, questions pouring in. I want to ask a question about Chinese students, but actually lots of audience are already asking similar questions. The American educational institutions have a wonderful history uh, of attracting the best and the brightest from the world. And in the post-1965 immigration system then allowed those young people, although it's a hard journey, but at least those young people will be able to continue to work, start companies, raise families, and uh, build new American lives. 
But in recent years, um, there have been accusations that almost all Chinese students are spies and the White House is beginning to bar Chinese students affiliated with universities that are part of the Chinese military civil fusion program. So as a result, many Chinese talents, they don't want to come or cannot come to the United States anymore. I'm curious about your views on this trend. And maybe we can start from John, since you were an early participant of the US-China educational exchange. Yeah, indeed, I was a beneficiary. In fact, if it hadn't been for Deng Xiaoping, I would never have made it to China. So um, I'm part of that uh, cross-pollination between both societies, uh, literally and figuratively. I'm married to a Chinese woman, and we have three kids. So um, uh, I think that the push to limit Chinese students coming to the United States is an extraordinarily negative trend. Uh, part of the many negative trends that we see now er erupting uh, and in, uh, informing US-China relations. Um, I think that uh, hopefully if there's a new president in the White House, that trend can be somehow somewhat abated. Nobody really knows for sure, but I think it's important. Um, but I think it's, it's, just, it's, it's another sign that the United States-China relations are, are going from bad to worse. Uh, it's very, very disturbing. Uh, at the same time, I would also argue that U.S. educational institutions have some, not all, but some, have not done a great job uh, at assimilating or bringing, bringing the Chinese into the United States. In some cases, you have the student body of, of big state universities, 10 to 15 percent are from China, which are a hugely important source of revenue to, for these universities. But then you have so many Chinese students coming to those schools that they kind of live in their own society. And those schools don't do significant outreach to the Chinese to make them feel part of the sort of the mainstream campus. And I think that that is a huge issue. And it's an issue that has spawned a lot of problems, both in the Chinese understanding of how America operates, but also perhaps even in the espionage space where people like that, which are just used to living in their own cultures are more uh, able to be preyed upon by Chinese intelligence officers. I mean, we need to be understanding and I think real that there is an espionage issue in the United States involving China. We can't, but obviously clearly it's not all Chinese students by any way, shape or form. It's probably a tiny percentage. The problem is that the Trump administration has magnified what is a real issue into something that is painting all these people as intelligence officers, which I think is a, a huge, is a disaster. Um, and and I, I also think it won't work. Um, you're, and, and to your point, Yong Lu, you're also losing a huge number of incredibly talented people. If you kicked all the Chinese physicists out of the United States, the American physics as a, as a, as a pursuit in the United States would collapse. You look at any major laboratory in the United States that is involved in either basic research in physics or advanced research in physics, and they're almost all staffed either by Chinese or Indians or French. Very few actually Americans, quote unquote, American Americans are in these labs. And so the United States needs to be very strategic as it looks at this issue, an espionage issue which is real, and how to deal with it while maintaining what they hope to be their, their edge. And that's a huge kind of um, uh, knife edge to walk on, but the Trump administration is failing miserably in, in, in terms of this issue. So that's, that's my rant on the issue. It's very complicated though. 
And to deny that there's no espionage, I think, is a mistake. Um, sort of similar in a way to, to saying you, 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 you can't criticize the foreign policy of Israel because you're anti-Semitic. I mean, it's, it's something we need to be mindful of, that China's government as an actor is very different from the Chinese people. We need to disaggregate those two things. Jennifer, you want to add your perspective to that question? I really defer to John in terms of his expertise and, and his really thorough answer. I mean, the only thing I would say is the, this, this White House administration deciding to make this move has ramifications that are really far and wide. Um, many universities and colleges in the United States actually count on having international students, particularly from China and East Asia. So the other thing is that I think it's a slippery slope. So in other words, it's China today, it could very easily be South Korea or Taiwan or Japan or Saudi Arabia. I mean, you know, again, pick your, pick your choice of country. So there's many reasons to fight this and address this, certainly from the point of view of supporting Chinese students and education and knowledge, um, but also because it's quite simply just wrong and it will lead to dire consequences in many, many sectors. And I definitely agree uh, with John's points that it's part of the university's responsibilities, you know, how to really help those students to assimilate um, to the American society. Um, we got a lot of questions from the audience. Let me start taking some of them. Simon Ma from Columbia University is asking, what do you see as the greatest obstacles to Asian Americans organizing for social and political change? Is there inherently less solidarity between various Asian American groups when compared to Black, Latino, and other ethnic groups? Um, and a, a couple of others, Fen Fen, Fen Yan An from New York State DTF and Zendra Zing share a similar concern. Solidarity within Asian American groups. I think that's a, a really valid point in question. And I mean, I don't know that I could speak absolutely to say that Asian Americans lack solidarity much greater than um, Black Americans or Latinx people, but I certainly could understand why. And that's because that unlike what it means to be Black in the United States or unlike what it means to be Latinx, where predominantly you have Spanish as a common language, there's very little, I would say, um, in terms of culture that unites people of Asian descent in the US. And in fact, even the term, and I understand why Asian American is a problematic term because Asia is so huge and I'm not even talking about Pacific Islander nations, right? So once you start to take into consideration Asian Pacific Islander Americans, and May was just APIA Heritage Month, we're talking about well over 40 languages, cultures, Long's history of um, antagonism, right? So just in the 20th century alone, looking at Japan and South Korea and China, and even just thinking about the relationship between China and Taiwan or China and Tibet, things get very complicated. So what it means to be Asian American is a recognition that those particularities that happen in a natal homeland get diminished, get flattened, when you arrive in the United States because someone who doesn't know what your particular ethnicity is or nationality 
and only sees your Asian looking face is going to start making certain assumptions about who you are, about your ability to speak English and an ability to speak English in the United States, unfortunately, is tied to intelligence. So anyone who has an accent, an Asian accent, is automatically seen as being less inherently smart. Um, that, is a, that is not something I believe, obviously, but it is, I think, a sad reality of US prejudice. Um, that doesn't mean that you can't unite. I think, again, one of the things that we have in common as Asian Americans is this understanding that we are not benefiting from white privilege, that we have been on the receiving end, in fact, of systemic racism, starting with the Chinese, extending into other Asian ethnic groups. If you look at the Japanese American incarceration, that's a prime example. Um, so I think there's possibilities of uniting, and I think those possibilities are first claiming to be an American, whether that's temporary, if you're a visiting student. Um, in my book, you get to claim America for as long as you want. It's not just about citizenship. It's not just about whether um, anyone's going to see you as American. You certainly don't have to. I'm in no way saying that people have to identify as American at all. Um, but I think that if you want to decide that you're here for whatever length of time, or whether you've been here for, for, for generations, this is your home. And if it's your home, you get to make your home better. And you, what you need is to find other people who share your values. And I'm here to say that there are many organizations um, that would share those values. I, as the president of the Association of Asian American Studies, would welcome you and be happy to be in dialogue with any of you. And I know that I have several colleagues also happy to be in dialogue to help share ways that we can come together as Asian Americans against racism. Great. I have a question from Kevin Chung from Jamaica Hospital. Um, he's asking, it seems that many of the initial racism were related to wearing masks due to the lack of understanding of Asian culture. Uh, many Americans, particularly petitions, think politicians think they have nothing to learn from Asia and are behaving arrogantly, which contributed to the delay in responding to the spread of this pandemic. Can you give me a thought on this issue? John, would you like to go first? Um, I mean, a little bit. Interesting, the, the history of mask wearing in China is um, kind of curious. Uh, it, uh, in, 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 after the revolution in 1949, of course, very quickly, uh, there was the invasion of North Korea, invasion of South Korea by the North Korean army backed by Stalin. And the Chinese were involved very quickly after the United States launched a counterattack and pushed towards the Yalu River, which is the border of um, the China and, 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 and Korea. And at the time, the Chinese government, after a couple of years of fighting the Americans, had allegations that the United States was involved in biological warfare uh, by dropping pests and other biological agents on Chinese soil to cause massive death and um, uh, disease. And the Chinese made these allegations, the Chinese government made these allegations against the United States. There was a panel of experts that was assembled to come do the research in China to prove the Chinese government's allegations. Um, ultimately, it was sort of has been debunked by historians. But from that moment on, there was a lot, the Chinese began to wear masks in, in Northeastern cities and that 
has spread across the country, it's spread into Japan. And as traditionally now it's become part of Chinese culture, if you're sick, you wear a mask. Um, and it's completely normalized in, in, in the Chinese society to actually to the benefit of everybody. Because if you're on a crowded subway, whether it be Tokyo or Beijing, um, you don't want to throw your virus around and people wear masks when they're sick and, and it works. Uh, and so for Americans to look at mask wearing as some type of a political statement, and it's now become a political statement in this country is just absolutely infuriatingly ridiculous. Even though the history is interesting, it works. Um, and so we've had situations where my wife, who is Chinese, has worn a mask in public and people basically have accused her of making a political statement. Um, and it's like, this is Berkeley, California. I mean, we should be like, a certain percentage of us should be relatively woke, but not. Um, and so it's completely infuriating. And it's, I think it's a great question and it's a good point. Um, but you know, what can you do? Um, now it's become a political issue, a political statement in this country and it's crazy. It's kind of like owning a gun, you know, it's just nuts. Sorry for the rant, but you know, I'm directly affected by this type of stuff. Jennifer, would you like to add your thoughts on how America and Asia and Asian people can actually cooperate in some way to combat this um, pandemic? Um, I mean, I don't really, again, I, I think John really said it best. The only thing I would say, because I'm aware that there's a lot of questions also scrolling through the Q&A. Um, so I think, one of the things I say as an anti-racism educator is that um, being anti-racist is not a partisan issue, that it is not a political issue in terms of an electoral party. Anyone can be racist and anyone can be anti-racist. However, this particular administration, which happens to be Republican, has been extraordinarily racist in my opinion. And I don't throw the R word around lightly. In fact, in my classes, I tell students that they're not allowed to call people racist that we're gonna really focus on systemic racism. But Donald Trump is racist. There's no other way to put it. And the GOP is playing off of fears of China. And I've seen the campaign material. There's a woman out of Texas Congressional District number um, 22. And she has campaign material that shows arrows labeled Chinese virus going across a map of the United States, heading east to west. And in her campaign video, she talks about how she's going to bring jobs back to the United States and cut off all trade with China, which also means she's pretty stupid if she thinks she can cut off trade with China, right, is what I would say. I don't mean to be so disrespectful to her, but I mean, honestly, really, cut off trade with China, absolutely, okay, yeah. Um, so we're going to be seeing an increased rhetoric coming out of the GOP and possibly from the Democrats blaming China in obvious and subtle ways. And I am really afraid that that anti-Chinese rhetoric is going to translate in increased violence towards Asian Americans. And so I think it's really important, again, for everyone to really have an understanding of what this rhetoric is, to understand that this is a dog whistle. This is a way of signaling to a certain base how to vote. Um, this is about prejudice and xenophobia and racism specifically against Chinese, but again, it doesn't matter to the person who is holding a vat of acid and throwing it in a woman's face, whether she's actually Chinese, Chinese American, or just someone that you can blame. 
and harm in the immediacy. Yeah, I, I would just want to add to Jennifer's point that I too am really concerned, not just with the GOP's electoral strategy, but now you see sort of Joe Biden competing with the GOP to show who's tougher on China. I don't really so much mind that competition, but I mind the fact that it's, I worry that it's gonna bleed into this sort of new rhetoric of anti-Chinese racism that you're gonna see, and, not, and to Jennifer's point, anti-Asian rhetoric you're gonna see in this country. That really, really worries me. Um, and Biden has an opportunity to kind of go higher in this issue and talk about a different type of relationship with China and embrace the fact that yes, we're competitors, but also recognize the fact, to Jennifer's point, that if you cut off trade with China, well, that's just not gonna happen. Um, it's just ridiculous to even think that it's gonna happen. Um, and I think that that worries me, that this, this growing competition about who's the tough guy uh, really, really disturbs me. And hopefully during this period of time where Joe Biden has essentially disappeared, um, he might have had, of course, a chance to, to kind of think about that and to perhaps recalibrate his campaign along these issues of trying to unite people, uh, including getting China's help and working with China more closely to deal with the pandemic, but in other issues as well. That's just my hope. I don't know whether it's gonna happen or not. Yeah, we have a lot of questions surrounding the upcoming election and how it will impact you know, uh, anti-racism efforts. Um, there's a more longer term issue uh, raised by Lorenzo in Scottsdale. Even with consistent education to encourage understanding and fighting prejudice, what are your concerns and thoughts about how the rising and the continuing 21st century competition between the US and China in the world economy and in geostrategic terms will exaggerate and perpetuate anti-Chinese and Asian prejudice in the US? So that's a more longer term concern. I could try to stumble into answering that or attempting to answer that. That's a great question. Um, in that, you know, you saw the rise of anti, very strong anti-Japanese racism in, in this country with the rise of Japan and a whole series of Michael Crichton novels, right? To sort of painting Japan as this horrible new uh, competitor of the United States. Uh, and, and Japan's, that, that Japan sort of racism was based on the American concerns about the juggernaut of the Japanese economy. The Chinese racism is not simply concerned with the Chinese economic juggernaut, but it also has an ideological element as well. So it's kind of, it's weaponized in both fronts. And so there's a real concern that quote, quote unquote, as China continues to rise, people will begin to, or be encouraged to hate China and the Chinese more. Um, but one of the underlying assumptions of that issue is that, uh, China's rise is gonna be non, it's, it's gonna continue on, into the future. And actually the thing that worries me more than a continuing strength in China is actually a China that is actually failing. And that's what actually worries me long-term. Not so much for the internal racism issues in the United States, but actually for the security of the world because a China that begins to confront really serious problems and it has, like any big society it has lots of problems, but demographic problems, underlying economic problems, environmental problems, et cetera, could be a China that will strike out 
in order to use nationalism as a way to try to unite the country under the, the leadership of the Communist Party. And so my sense is that with people like Jennifer working in this country to fight uh, Chinese racism, uh, anti-Asian racism, and with perhaps Americans uniting around a different political leadership that we will be able to manage our political elite to help them manage their relationship with China. Whether we can do that is a huge question, but I think seminars like this, people like Jennifer are extremely important to maintaining, you know, I mean, as we've seen with the murder of George Floyd, this country can go, to, go, go nuts. I mean, basically only takes a straw or as Mao, Mao Zedong said, a spark can, can light a prairie fire. So it's important to put the prairie fire out have people like Jennifer work with, and people like the National Committee work with the American population to, to try to encourage them to have a broader view, at the same time managing, regardless of racism, what is going to be an extremely difficult relationship with China going forward. It's not like you're gonna switch into Biden and everything will be back to normal. We're on a trajectory with China that is very negative. Some of it we can stop, but other parts, we also have to recognize, and this sort of is, is, is an interesting issue, that you have to give China agency as well. And that often as Americans, we tend to blame the United States for every problem we face around the world. That must be America's fault because those people don't have agency because we're white or whatever powerful. But China is a player in this relationship as well. And its choices, which it's made over the course of the last 20 years, or 15 or so, have been relatively difficult for us to stomach. And so as we manage that relationship, it's important for us to manage ourselves. And I think that what this whole eruption of racism and the murder of the black man in, in Minneapolis have, have brought home to me is that the most important thing we can do to manage our relationship with China actually is to work on our relationship with ourselves. And that this country is so much better when we begin to actually carry out the ideals that we you know, are taught that we have um, and we'll be in a much better place to deal with China if we do that. If we don't, and we keep on electing people like Trump, I think we're in for a hell of a mess, so. it's a great point. Um, there's a question for Jennifer. To what extent the Chinese culture and the parenting focus on asking the young to be obedient and focus on only doing things to better one's career and the materialistic game? and a lot less on civic engagement, make the Chinese less vocal and participatory on social causes. Can you comment on that? So first of all, I'm not a sociologist. So, um, and my inclination is to be a little bit wary about blanket statements. So in other words, I'm um, the child of Chinese immigrant parents um, and, uh, those whatever lessons that they tried to teach me in terms of obedience really didn't stick right including going to chinese school which when i asked my my father why they didn't try and make me go to chinese school he said would you have gone and i said no because it's true i dropped out of um my family's catholic i dropped out of ccd right i was um maybe born a rebel i don't know so i guess one thing is that while certainly one can point to and by the way um, I don't know if Amy Chua is on this webinar, and so I apologize if anyone who's friends with Amy Chua is on this webinar, but I really cannot stand her book, right? And I know everyone's using this phrase, tiger mom and tiger parenting, like the only thing that book is good for 
is used in psychology classes to see what a narcissist looks like. It's brilliant in that regard. As far as some kind of parenting guide for Chinese parents, it's awful. And I know plenty of people who are Chinese and Chinese Americans that did not do the things that Amy Chua said that she did. Um, I'll stop on the Amy Chua rant. I could go on and on. So I guess the first thing I would say is I think it's really easy to paint broad brushstrokes about Chinese or Chinese American or Asian parents. Now, there's certainly a grain of truth, right? So in other words, I take off my shoes when I enter a house. That's been ingrained in me. I do it. I think it makes sense. I find it really kind of gross when people wear their outdoor shoes inside a house. I'm sure a lot of you are nodding right now. Does that make me better than the people who wear their shoes inside their house, bringing in all sorts of germs and disease? No, it doesn't make me better. It's just something that culturally got passed down to me, right, from my parents that many um, cultures do. Um, certainly a lot of Asian cultures do it, but also non-Asian um, ethnicities and nationalities do it as well. Um, yes, there can be seen more of a collective sense of I'm doing this for the greater good, or there could be a sense that Chinese Americans are teaching their kids to be more materialistic. But I also think that um, you will find people who will rebel against their parents or will follow their bliss and become artists. And certainly I've seen this in my own classrooms when I teach Asian American literature. I have students who are pre-med who come to me and they really want to be humanities majors. And you know, I'm not trying to interfere with people's parenting, but I also let people know when you're over 18, you're an adult and you can make your own decisions. And I think that's really important. And I heard a lot of um, uh, Chinese American, Asian Americans are commenting, you know, how how, how to deal with the current um, discrimination situation is a lot of them are focused on how to improve themselves. You know, how can do better, how to be more American themselves. Do you think this is something would be useful in, in terms of actually com combating the racism, you know, to be a better, better American to change their image? So I don't want to dominate conversation because, especially because John has so much wisdom, but let me just say, it doesn't work. I, I really, it doesn't work. So anyone who's thinking that I'm going to out American the Americans as a way to kind of prevent racism from befalling you, it doesn't work. We have plenty of historical examples showing that. Andrew Yang's op-ed was bashed entirely and widely by the Asian American studies community and the critical race studies community. The idea that somehow Chinese Americans owe it to the United States, as if we're not American, to somehow fly the flag or assimilate or you know, bake an apple pie every weekend and watch a, watch a baseball game, like that is absolutely ridiculous. I'm American. I was born in this country. I speak fluent English. I'm really proud that I get to be American and I get to criticize the US government. That's part of the freedom of speech that I enjoy. Um, I don't have to do anything else to be a proud American than to criticize the United States. It's one of the best things I can do as an American is to want to make the United States a better place. So no, assimilating is not going to protect you. Having, I have a white husband. He does not protect me from racism. My PhD does not protect me from racism. And you're probably getting a sense that I'm kind of a fiery person. And so, um, you know, the woman shouting at me from her porch didn't faze me. I do understand that that's not true for a lot of people. And I want to really recognize that when racist things happen to you, it's like getting kicked in the stomach. It's awful. And what I would say is please take care of yourself in whatever way you can to be gentle and find support. Please do that. 
Um, but please know that there is support. There are people who want to hear and will acknowledge the experiences that you've had, the trauma that you've had. And then there are things that you can do and work towards. That's a very useful message to hear. Um, a question for John. Chinese are neglected by the American society in many scenarios. Even some of the Chinese students who are studying overseas, they are facing hostile situations on campus and in society. Is there any guide to knocking down this political barrier between American and Chinese in the American society? Well, I think that in, in the issue of the Chinese students in the United States, uh, the smaller colleges and some of the private institutions in America, I think have done actually a pretty decent job, back to this earlier point of assimilating and helping the Chinese Americans, Chinese students in America to assimilate. I think once you get onto some of the state campuses, um, University of Minnesota comes to mind where 10 to 15% of the student body is Chinese it becomes a cash cow for the state university, which is really because state budgets have been cut for education, that the Chinese student, an Indian student, a foreign student is often paying full freight there, which becomes an important part of the budget of that university. But the university doesn't put the resources into kind of, in a way, coddling the student initially, helping the student assimilate, and also protecting the student. And so that's a big issue. And I think universities have to spend a lot more time and effort in helping not just Chinese students, but also all foreign students to feel uncomfortable in the United States. I think it's an important part. We just think that the assimilation process, we also have this kind of, this ridiculous idea that the power of American culture is so wonderful that you just come here and everything will be fine. And that's a very difficult process for a lot of people. Uh, and they naturally will relax back into the comfort of their cohort. And that might not always be good because then when they interact with quote unquote real Americans, it often can be very fraught and very difficult for them. And I think these universities don't spend the time and the effort for understandable reasons, but nonetheless, they don't spend the time and the effort in trying to make these people feel much more comfortable in the country. And that also will have an impact on the, the student body at large. And there has to be, resources put into that area as well, in terms of implicit bias training and all sorts of other issues that not just cops, but also Americans, civilians entering students deal with this at the same time. And that that's a lot, will take a lot of resources, which I understand under the current environment, it's only gonna get worse, are, 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 are strained, but it's a necessary thing to do in order to make these people feel more welcome in this country. Yeah, Jennifer, do you have anything else to add to, you know, in terms of how we can support, better support the Chinese students? No, I, I really think John said it best, yeah. Okay, we only have a little time left. And the next question we have is a great way to conclude the discussion. Looking into the future, what's the most important message you want our audience watching the webinar around the country to remember? What about we start from John and end with Jennifer and I would give you each one minute to deliver. Um, I think the first thing I would, there's something that I've been thinking about a lot is that it's important as we, in terms of the, our relationship with China, understand that, and we need to disaggregate any criticism of China and the Chinese government with criticism of Asian Americans. 
And that's a really, really important issue in this country because we've dealt with it before in terms of the 1950s, the 1920s, the 1890s. I mean, this has been a cyclical thing that we've had that when we've criticized China, we've always gone after Asian Americans, Chinese Americans. And I think it's really, really important. And it's incumbent specifically on the Democratic Party because the GOP's already made its choice. The Republicans have already made this choice. They want to be the party of anti-Asia, anti-Asians. That's their deal. Demonize everybody. Uh, uh, and that's their choice. So the Democrats have another choice, which is try to kind of go higher than that. And I don't know whether they have the capability to do that, but I think it's really important going forward that as we manage what is going to be, regardless of anything happening in this country, a fractious relationship with a nuclear-armed China, we've got to get our house in order here. And I think a key element of that and key ingredient of that is making sure that we don't have eruptions of anti-Asian racism because our relationship with China has gone from to, to a hell in a handbasket. That's a key issue from my perspective as somebody who cares about the US-China relations, but also is mindful of the fact that China is a serious competitor to the United States and does not wish us well. Jennifer. You can do it. If you're on this webinar, you can make a difference in this world. You have the power to influence other people. It's scary to take that first step but you've already done it by attending this webinar. The next step is to read more, learn more, take more webinars. And here's the thing, being a social justice activist, being somebody who supports anti-racism, no one's born a social justice warrior. Everyone had to do the education, to talk to people, and you're gonna make mistakes. I make mistakes all the time, still. I make mistakes, because the thing about race and racism is it keeps changing. And so things that you learn that were true 10 years ago, conventional wisdom changes. And it's okay to make mistakes. I know in the cancel culture that we have, it feels like it's not. I'm hoping that changes. And I'm just here to say that it's possible for everyone to make a difference in this world. And that all you need is the will and desire to do so. And then to speak and act. Very well said. It's really a moment for us to come together and to cooperate as a community, regardless of our, our political views and the color of our skin. And all Americans, um, no matter what's our races, we will need to fight the pandemic together. And don't let fear prevent us from doing so. Jennifer, John, thank you so much. And this has been a terrific discussion. I've learned so much from you and I'm sure our audience have learned a lot from you too. Um, really appreciate your time and insights and your goodwill to unite across our communities. And we at the National Committee look forward to seeing you in person, hopefully in the not too distant future. Thank you. Thank you very much. Goodbye. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.